Hello, my friends. Good to be with you. Thank you, worship team and Marine, for reading that. Scripture passage from Romans chapter 12, 9 to 21, which we looked at last week, if you remember. That's quite a list, isn't it? I mean, did you grab all that Marine said there? I mean, if you look at love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, bless those who persecute you, live in harmony, don't be proud, do not be conceited, do not repay anyone evil for evil, when it's up as much as it's possible to you, live at peace with all people. This is quite a list. How do we do that? As we talked about last week, it's impossible for us to do that in our own strength. There's no way we could do that without God. It is possible to do that in Christ. It is possible to grow into that. And today, I wanted to linger in this spot a little bit and learn how to do that. I mentioned last week that oftentimes Jesus and Paul teach us to a point of impossibility. They teach us to a place where we say, that's impossible. There's no way I could do that. Jesus said, your righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were among the most righteous, outwardly righteous people of the day. And people looked at that and said, that's impossible. We can't do that. Paul taught things like this and said, this is how you should live. And it made people say, that's impossible. I can't do that. So there's a couple responses to when you hear impossible teaching. The first one is you say, oh, that's impossible. I just can't do that. And you just forget about it and move on and you live however you want to live. That's not a really good response. Another response is you say, you know what? I got this. I can do this. And you work really, really, really hard to make sure you live every single thing that's listed there. And then you fail. That's not a right response either. There's a gospel way to live, and that's the right response. And today I want to walk through a gospel way to live where we go before God and we say, God, I can't do this, but would you come into my life? Will you help empower me to live this way? And we slowly, gradually work towards that end goal. We see this in reality all the time. A few weeks ago, I talked about shortly after Hamas invaded Israel. I talked about how as a church we need to speak moral clarity into an increasing world where there's moral fog and say what is right and say what is wrong. And I encouraged us to pray. And I said, and pray for Israel and pray for uh, those who are in Palestine who are not Hamas. And then I said, and also pray for Hamas, that their hearts would be turned towards Christ. And some of you refreshingly, I loved every minute of it, refreshingly came up to me and said, you know, I could pray for Israel, but I don't know if I can pray for Hamas. And I loved the honesty. It's hard to follow Jesus sometimes, isn't it? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I can make a pretty strong biblical argument 
that as followers of Jesus, we should be praying for the souls of those who do evil things. But it's not easy. Sometimes following Jesus means doing things that are difficult. Sometimes following Jesus means we have to step out of our comfort zone. Sometimes following Jesus means we do the uncomfortable. We go against what seems natural to us. Living and experience the gospel may seem difficult at times, but when we do those things, we die to ourselves. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. And it's often in those places we die to ourselves that we experience the resurrected life of Jesus. Paul, who wrote Romans, also wrote this in Philippians. He said, I want to know Jesus Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And as a church, we say, yeah, I want to be a person of power. I want to live the power of his resurrection and, and participate in his sufferings. Say, what? Becoming like him in his death? And so somehow attaining the resurrection of death, there it is again, yes, I want to do that. When we live our lives denying ourselves, when we live through suffering, when we live through trials, we are fellowshipping in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And it's something that between the time we give our lives to Christ and the time we see him face to face, we are called to do as his people. This verse is saying that sometimes following Jesus is going to feel like dying to our own desires. There are times where we don't want to pray for our enemies. There are times where we don't want to pray for those who do evil. There are times we don't want to pray for those we don't get along with. There are times where we want to remain silent when we know we're supposed to speak up. And there are times when we speak up when we know we're supposed to remain silent. There are times where we don't want to give up a day off to help somebody all day. There are times we don't want to read our Bible or pray. There are times we don't want to attend church or life group. There are times we don't want to volunteer to serve. And there are often times when we resist doing these godly things that God's calling us to die to ourselves a little bit, that we would live. The Christian life is not one where we just do whatever feels comfortable. And we take the parts of the Bible that we like and the other parts we just kind of shrug off and pretend they're not there. When we die, we live. And when we don't feel like it, the gospel way looks like this. The gospel way to say, Jesus, I don't feel like giving up a day off to go help that person. Help my heart to live your way. Not that I try to attain it in my own strength. We admit flat out, I can't do it, but I need your help. And I've often found that when you go through those times and God helps you and you get to the end of it, you look back and say, that was so good. I can't tell you the amount of times that it was time to go to life group. It was a really long day. And being more introverted, the last thing I wanted to do was go and be with a group of people again. And it was life group time, and we went to life group, and then on the way home, I say, man, that was so good. I'm so glad I went. Oftentimes, we battle in the flesh, and we end up in the spirit with a gift beyond what we can imagine. I think that's part of the resurrected life. 
We've been in this series of Romans where we're talking about experiencing the gospel together. And Romans tells us how to do that. It's an instruction of how to live out the gospel. And living out the gospel involves dying to our own desires at times so that we might live in the power of Jesus Christ. And to live in the power of Jesus Christ is the best way a human being can live. It's the best way a human being can live. But to get there, you often have to die. Last week, we looked at Romans 12, 9 to 21, and Paul practically described what it looks like to live the Christian life. Maureen read it this morning. We looked at it again, and we said we can't do that in our own strength. We need God to follow God. We need God to come. And if living the Christian life feels impossible, one, you are in good company. Two, it begs the question, how are we supposed to live? And so I wanted to pause the series a little bit to linger in this place and look at another place where Paul tells us how we are supposed to live, and that's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you brought your Romans journal like some of you did, I was just talking to a friend who said, I love this journal. Look at how great this is. I love that we did this for the series. Um, Just find a little corner somewhere and write Galatians 2.20 in your journal, and you could take some notes that way. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians is in the New Testament. It's before Romans. If you turn to Romans, just back up. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. It's after Romans. Uh, Turn to the right if you were in Romans. Paul summarizes living gospel life in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In this one verse, I feel Paul summarizes how we are supposed to live the Christian life. How do we live what we read in Romans chapter 12, 9 to 21? This way. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Let me ask you a question. How do you tend to look at yourself? How do you tend to look at yourself? Nice? Successful? Strong? Failure? Rotten? Blowing it all the time? Odd, nerdy, perhaps normal. How do you tend to look at yourself? As you think about that question, most of us answer that question based on what we think others think of us or what others have said about us or by things that we do. And the problem with that kind of thinking is that subjects our identity to the ups and downs of life. And when we're doing well and we do things right, then we think pretty highly of ourselves. And when we don't do things well and we're sinning or falling short, then we tend to look at ourselves at the very least as failures. However, what's worse is when you take that approach to how you relate to God. When as a Christian, your relationship with God is based on how the performance of your day goes. And when you go to church and when you pray and you attend a life group and you read your Bible, then you say, well, God must really, really like me today. 
I'm doing all those things. And when you don't do the things you're supposed to, you say, God must be really, really disappointed with me. So all of a sudden, our religious performance, be it up and down, becomes the final word with our walk with God. That's not gospel living. But so many of us live that way, if we're honest. Living that way makes it all depend upon us. And I don't know about you, but I know that myself, I know myself well enough that that's a horrible way for me to live. And in this verse, Paul gives us absolutely wonderful news. He says there's a better way. You don't have to live like that. You don't have to live on the performance roller coaster when it comes to your standing before God. There's a better way. There's a gospel way. And this is it. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body and the reality of my world, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a way to live. Christians are not people who fall in and out of God's love and grace based upon how they are performing. Christians are people who are united to Christ. That's how you view your life as a follower of Jesus. You are united to Christ. In order to live the Christian life, you must see, we must see ourselves as united to Jesus Christ. We are described as the body of Christ, united. What happens to Jesus' body happens to us being united with him in his death. We died and now we are united in his resurrection. This is how we live. Heir of salvation like we sang, purchased of God, born of the spirit, washed in his blood. We are new people. Theologian Michael Reeves says this, our identity as hell-bound sinners was killed on the cross and we now have been raised with him to enjoy his new life beyond all condemnation. Jesus died and Paul says we died with him. Jesus rose from the dead and Paul says we rose with him. We are united to Christ. This changes everything in terms of how we live the Christian life. All my many failures do not define me before God and all the good godly things I do don't define me before God either. The one thing that defines who I am before God is the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. I am clothed and hidden in Jesus when I become a follower of him. He is now my identity. He is what God sees when God looks at me. I've been crucified with Christ and now Jesus is my identity. Every single day I stand before God. I can talk with him. I can hang out with him. I can sit and be with him. I can invite him into all that I'm doing throughout my day because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. Not on the basis of my own spiritual performance, not on the condition that I avoid spiritual failure, not on the basis of my own righteousness or the good things that I do, on the basis of Jesus Christ and him alone and what he has accomplished. As followers of Jesus, we don't fall in and out of God's love. We are kept there by Christ. As followers of Jesus, we don't fall in and out of God's love. We are anchored there because of who Jesus is and what he did for us. 
Because of that, we don't stand before God in our own goodness, our own emotional roller coaster. We stand before God in the righteousness and the goodness of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you see how hopeful that is? Do you see how freeing that is? That's the story of Romans. This is how we're to live. For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to walk through this slowly and take a look at this kind of line by line. I've been crucified with Christ. The context for this statement in Galatians is Paul saying he no longer tries to justify his standing before God by doing good things in his own strength and in his own uh, goodness. He's saying I cannot fulfill God's perfect command to full obedience in my own strength and with what I have so instead I choose to die. I choose to be crucified with Christ. I take all that effort to try to be good and I put it on the cross in terms of me relating to God. This verse literally means I've been crucified with Christ and I am and will remain crucified with Christ. Denying ourselves. Doing those things we don't feel like doing. Counting them as being nailed to the cross. The self-reliant, self-dependent, self-promoted Paul died. Now he relies on another, Jesus Christ, to live. He no longer looks to himself. It's not about him. It's about Jesus. Do you know how freeing that is when you can live that way? I've been kind of practicing this in my mind as I go into different situations in life, and I just remind myself as I pray, I say, Holy Spirit, remind me, this isn't about Dan. This isn't about me. This is about Christ. We get to step out of the way and let God do his thing. It's a better way to live. When we don't feel like doing what is right, we look to Christ. We live a crucified life and we deny ourselves. This means we don't have to be right first or all together. Jesus calls us as his people to represent him. But to do that first, we deny ourselves and look to him. It says that we also in this verse no longer live. Paul said, I no longer live. By dying with Christ, Paul stepped off the throne of his life and now instead of ruling and reigning himself, now Jesus sits and occupies the throne of his heart. Jesus now directs and calls the shots. Jesus now decides what he's going to do with his time, his talent, and his money. Jesus now decides what he's going to do with his future and holds every moment in his hand. Paul yielded the enthroning of his heart to Jesus and Jesus alone, and Jesus claimed it all. There's no bargaining with Jesus. I'll keep this part, you take the rest. No, Jesus, if he's on the throne, he's on the throne. He's king of our hearts and our minds and our lives. And all of our lives now belong to him. That's what the Christian life is. So Paul gave up the throne of his heart to Jesus, but he couldn't do it in his own strength. Paul is not able to live the Christian life in his own strength, just as we are not able to live the Christian life in his own strength. He needed something greater. He needed a power source he needed something that would live in his place. But Christ lives in me. 
Notice the flow. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul was not able to live the Christian life in his own strength, but it's a good thing because Christ took up residence inside of him. That's what it means to be a Christian. In the Christian life, when we deny ourselves, Jesus now lives through us. This means at least two things. First, it means that all the blessings of Jesus are now applied to us. We become the object of his love, of his grace, of his mercy, of his forgiveness, of his strength, of his righteousness, of his power, of his standing before God. That all now becomes ours. And second, we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is known in the scriptures as the Spirit of Jesus. We are empowered to live the Christian life when we die. When we deny ourselves daily and take up his cross. But Jesus doesn't automatically come in and take control in a believer's life. There's something that is required of us. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Faith, belief, trusting in Jesus. Faith is what releases the divine power in our life and enables us to live the Christian life. When you surrender and say, God, I need you. I can't do this without you. I look to you. I trust you. I believe you are God overall. Please come into my life and help me live that way that pleases you and gives you glory. He enters in. That's faith. Some people say, just have faith. Just have faith. Just have faith. But yeah, what are you talking about with that? Faith in what? It should be faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the object of our faith. We don't say, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm sick, but I want to be healthy, so I'm going to have enough faith to say I'm healthy. No. Faith in Jesus, not in good health. Faith in Jesus, not in riches. Faith in Jesus, not in a good job. Jesus is the object of a Christian's faith. That's how we live. And when we say we believe in Jesus, it's not just a head intellectual belief. We believe to the point of denying ourselves. We believe in the point that even though I don't feel like doing this, I'm going to do this because you are God and I am not. That releases power in our lives. That is faith. That is placing your trust in Jesus. Your whole trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says to be a follower of Jesus, you must turn, trust, and follow. You turn from your sin, you repent, you turn to God. You trust, that's faith. You say, you are the son of God, the one and only son of God. And I'm gonna live for you. I wanna give my life to you. I wanna turn over the throne of my heart and surrender my life to you. That's trust. And then you follow him. He is the king. He is the leader. We no longer are. It's not good works that enable us to live the Christian life. It's not our own goodness that enables us to, Christ, to live the Christian life. It's a trust in Jesus that releases power in our life. It's the gift of Jesus anchored in this amazing truth. And why would God give us this method, a way of living? Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
And whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Paul is affirming here in this verse in Galatians and throughout Romans that if he loves me enough to give himself for me, then he loves me enough to live out his life through me. If he loves me enough to give, out his, give himself for me, then he loves me enough to live out his life through me. God loves us. God loves you. Do you know that? Do you know that God really, really, really loves you? He wants nothing more for you to surrender your life to him so that he can live through you. We can't live the gospel or the Christian life in our own power. We need Jesus. It reminds me of riding the trains into downtown Chicago. I once had a job where I had to do that often. And if I close my eyes and listen, you know what I could still hear? I can still hear the conductor coming by and taking the tickets that are clipped to the seats, and I can hear that like a really distinct sound. And I remember feeling like really, really tired driving into Chicago to go do work and hearing that noise. One author said living the Christian life is like riding a certain train. Here's the trains we know. It says the train rumbles into the station with his warning bell clanging. The doors open. The uniformed conductor steps out. You climb on board and you find a way to your seat. When you look around the car, you see tickets clipped to the top of the seats. Those tickets are paid with hard-earned money. Those tickets displayed at each seat are the, the special concern of the conductor who walks through the car and punches those tickets to confirm that you paid to take a ride on this train. If the conductor finds you without a ticket, you have two choices. Either you pay on the spot or you are removed at the very next stop. To ride this train, what matters is the paid ticket. That's doing the Christian life in your own strength. That's righteousness by works. Righteousness by grace and faith in the Son of God, on the other hand, works totally different. God's train pulls into the station, warning bells are clanging, the doors open, the conductor steps out, masses of people crowd on board to find their seats. For everybody wants to ride this train because it leads to the city where people never die. And eventually the conductor walks through the train to see if everyone belongs on board. But on this train, the conductor's not looking for tickets clipped to the seats. In fact, anyone who tries to pay for the right to be on this train is promptly escorted off the train at the next stop. That's right. No one can earn the right to be on this train. What the conductor looks for as he walks seat by seat through the car is penniless people that he knows by name, the people who are his friends, who completely lack the means to pay to be on this train. These poverty-stricken people climb aboard the train with one hope. They believe in the love of their conductor. They believe in the generosity of their conductor as friend. This is righteousness by grace. 
A ride on God's train is a gift. And by our human standards, it's unfair. It's scandalous. It's not right. But like it or not, that's the way of heaven. That's the gospel way. That's the way of Jesus Christ. God gave us many important gifts for the Christian life. He gave us Jesus. He gave us the Holy Spirit living inside of us, empowering us. He gave us his word to guide us and lead us. You know what other gift he gave us? He gave us the church. Until we die, we have the church. And the church reminds us of everything I just said. That's why it's so important to come here. Because not only do you hear the gospel declared when you come to church, but you hear it displayed. I love coming to church and seeing the gospel displayed out in that foyer when you greet each other. Some of you shake hands, some of you hug, you hear about each other's week. I love when I see pockets of you praying for each other. I love it when you, I see people being, I hear encouraging words. Where else are you going to find that? The gospel displayed, where we come in this place at our absolute worst, and God graces us with gifts that help us point to Jesus, to remind us of who we are. We live out this Christian life in his strength, not our own, but we live out this Christian life in community as well. I want you to watch this video, and I'll be right back. We're in a culture where massive people have abandoned regular gathering of the church. We are now in this instant pleasure media age. We can get instant gratification from a variety of sites. TikTok will give us that in 15 seconds. We have accepted the name social media, but social media is anything but social. It's it's a completely privatized world. I only go where I want to go. I only listen to what I want to listen to. I do that alone on a screen that's almost impossible to share. Individualism is the result of the fall. What are Adam and Eve saying? We don't need you. We can live without you. We live without your power, your presence, your grace, your wisdom. We don't need it. The hook was individualized wisdom. Wisdom doesn't need community with God. In our generation, we have made individualism possible in a way that was never possible before. And that's a grave danger to us. Ephesians 1 through 3 is one of the best gospel rants in all of the Bible. And it's very interesting at the end, what follows is a very strong call to keep your relationships with one another unified and healthy. It's very clear from the earliest days of the early church, relationships were of the highest priority. I do think that when we talk about participation in the Sunday gathering of the church, we often present that more as an obligation 
than a beautiful welcome. That's why I have talked about the way the Psalms presents it, with just, wow, I get to be part of this. I've been chosen to be part of this group of people, to receive this good thing. So I bring that to a worship service. I know this is important for me. I know remembering my identity in Christ makes all the difference in the world. I know that I need instruction to break through my foolishness and my confusion. I know that in the heart of every human being is a desire to be loved and it makes a difference if I experience love of brothers and sisters. It has been years since I've thought of the Sunday gathering as an obligation that I'm held accountable for. I just think of it as one of God's sweetest gifts to me. Between the already and the not yet, what do I have? I have his word and his church. I cannot live without his word and his church. And I'm so thankful that my Heavenly Father gave me these two gifts because I don't know where I would be without them. Be part of this. We get to be part of this. God the Father, out of his love, invites us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus, and then we are brought into a group of people that get to receive together the goodness, the grace, the love, the mercy, the forgiveness, and the power of God the Father. How amazing is that? That's not a duty. That's a joy. Just imagine what would happen if we viewed the Christian life this way. Imagine what would happen if we, in those times, died to ourselves and said, Jesus now lives. And then we do what Romans 12, 9 to 21 tells us to do. Imagine what would happen if the world saw a church living like this, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good, devoting one another in love, honoring one another above ourselves, being joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, sharing with the Lord's people who are in need, practicing hospitality, blessing those who persecute us and not cursing, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn, living in harmony with everyone, not being proud, but being willing to associate with people of low position, not being conceited, not repaying anyone for evil, being careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone and if possible to us, as much as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone. Revival would break out if we lived like that. We would see masses of people coming to Christ. If we gave our hearts to Christ in that way and then came into a place like this where it's infused with the relationships of our brothers and sisters, that's heaven on earth. That's a gospel light that cannot be snuffed out. If we live what Paul wrote here, being crucified with Christ, 
I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we live like that, there's no way revival could not come to this city. That's living in a way that's empowered by Jesus, empowered by his spirit, empowered by his word, surrounded by brothers and sisters, exhorting and encouraging us on. That will change everything. Let's pray.